You're listening to Westside Church. For more information, visit us at westsideinfo.com. you would agree with me as I pray as well. Lord, we thank you for this day. Uh, we thank you for this wonderful community. We thank you for the new people that have been brought in, Lord. Uh, we just really, uh, we pray that they are a blessing to us and we are a blessing to them, that our giftings can um, support, love, and encourage one another and that we can move forward together as you desire us to do, moving one step at a time in unity, accomplish your purposes, Lord, to bring about your kingdom and your timing, always having our eyes fully focused on you every moment of every day, Lord. We thank you that you're with us always. Amen. Amen. All right. Un momento, por favor. Ah, Tomas got me bad habits. <laughs> um, it's lovely being here with you. Uh, we had a wonderful time yesterday um, at the men's breakfast. I would encourage you, if you weren't there, to come out next time around. We have a men's event. It's very encouraging, a um, good time to get to know each other and to have a good message and to be spurred on. So I'd encourage any of the men folk that weren't there and the women folk to elbow their men folk. Um, <laughs> We are continuing through Genesis. Uh, we've essentially just finished up a section out of 42 through 45 about Joseph's brothers being tested and the reuniting of the family. Uh, if this were a um, kind of like a Greek story, we were, we've gone through the first four acts, we've hit the big climactic moments, and now it comes way down. They call it the anticlimax in any sort of literature. And it's when you're tying up the loose ends, when you're taking care of all the little details before you close out the story. Now, this is a narrative. It's not a story, but it also has the same elements of the real exciting stuff has already happened. And so now we are going through the family coming back together, what, the, what they're looking like into the future. And there are critical details within this. There's critical messages for us as a people to still learn from this as we walk through the next few chapters of Genesis. And so in 46, it's all about, as I perceived, seeing the big picture while still living day by day. And as I considered that, it was this analogy jumped in my head of a puzzle. Anyone ever put together a jigsaw puzzle? Some of you really love jigsaw puzzles. I heard some of the murmurings. Some of you don't love jigsaw puzzles. I really enjoy jigsaw puzzles. Um, it's dangerous for me because I have a personality type that gets, gets all consumed in the jigsaw puzzle. Uh, witnessed this as an issue at one holiday event long before children. Uh, my mother-in-law, Patty, she put out one of this on Christmas, and it was of a lighthouse. And so me and my brother-in-law, Matt, we sat down and like, oh, puzzle. And so they had to drag us away to do the presents and things. And, but a jigsaw puzzle. How do you begin a jigsaw puzzle? Edges. Is that really the first thing you do? You got to flip everything over so you can see it. So we begin by flipping everything over. We don't know where it all goes yet, but we can at least see the whole thing now. And then we get the edges. Why do we get the edges? Boundaries, framework. You get the big picture. You get boundaries in which you're going to be working within this task. And you set that little box up next to you like they got right there. So you know what you're working on. I feel like the people who do like the all white puzzle or the all black puzzle, the all yellow puzzle, they're just gluttons for punishments. Um, <laughs> but within this idea, when you begin working on the puzzle, 
you look at the big picture, but you don't assemble the whole thing at once. That's not possible. You don't pick up a piece and go, where's the exact location of this piece? All right, let's find it exactly where it is in the puzzle. No, you gather it around the other pieces that are a part of what it's doing. You put a puzzle together piece by piece. You walk through life day by day. But you can't just do piece by piece. You can't live in that section. It fits into a whole. It fits into a bigger idea that defines what we're doing so that when we've collected that whole, when we've gathered all these things together, fulfilling their purpose, we set them in their place. Okay, now we need to move on to the next area and the next area and the next area. And eventually the whole puzzle comes together. And so that's what we're seeing today. We're seeing with this family as they walk through life, they need to stop every now and then and look at the big picture. When you pick up a piece and you go, I have no idea where this goes, and then you have to look back at the box. You have to look back at the, the outline, what you're headed towards to know where is this going. And you search and you find and go, okay, I know where this goes. This one is a blue birdhouse. I'm not going to try to make it fit with the yellow birdhouse. Some of you are a blue birdhouse. You, you will never be a yellow birdhouse. And that's an important distinction to understand about ourselves. We each have a very specific purpose in the greater plan that God has. We might want to be a blue bird house or a yellow bird house or a red bird house, but if you're a green bird house, you have to fulfill that spot that God has for you. Otherwise, you're going to be holding on that piece and going, no, I'm holding on to it till I'm green. And the puzzle will never be complete because you refuse to add your piece to the puzzle because it wasn't what you wanted to do. We all fit within God's plan. We have to realize it's God's plan. He's got a piece for us that's perfect that fits into that puzzle. So right now we're going to see this family. They're going to refer back to the box today. They're not just charging ahead with their plan. They're going to say, Lord, is this really what you want us to be doing? So let's begin out of Genesis 46. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. So when we look at Jacob, he had his most powerful interactions with the Lord, not at Beersheba. He had his most powerful interactions with the Lord at Bethel. But Bethel's north. Bethel isn't headed the way they need to be going Beersheba is where his father had his most powerful interactions with the Lord. The previous generation, the previous promises that Jacob has inherited now. And so he's going to where his father worshiped and he's seeking the Lord there and he's going to call upon him as the God of his father. Lord, is this really what you have for me and my family in this? He's pausing a moment to consider and honoring those that have come before and humbling himself before God here. And God spoke to Israel in a vision of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. And he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba, the sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives, and the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt. 
Jacob and all his offspring with him, the sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. So when he got the good news that his son's alive and he's last week and he said, enough, my son lives, I will go see him before I die. He didn't just go charging off down to Egypt. He didn't say, oh, this is the cry of my heart and it feels right and I want this, so I'm going. No, he stopped first. He paused and he sought the Lord. First of all, to seek counsel. Out of Proverbs 9, 10 through 11, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me, your days will be multiplied and years will be added to your life. There will be situations in your life where it's exactly what you want. Oh Lord, it feels so right. I've wanted this for so long. I'm just gonna charge headlong into it. There's a saying, it's called fools rush in. We have it for a reason. Scripturally, this is the spiritual characteristic of caution. Some things can look too good to be true. And it's good to realize that and to seek the Lord beforehand, going, Lord, I, I really want this, but is this really what you have for me? This is what I've wanted my whole life. I have, I have personally faced that decision before. And what I really wanted wasn't the decision that needed to be made. It was the difference between me going there and me coming here, actually. The option, the cry of my heart and my desires and what I wanted to do for a living my whole adult career was presented before me. And I could have just seized it. But I decided in the moment I should probably ask God about it. Because he'd been taking me a different direction for so long. It's, Lord, this seems so strange to be put before me now. And it seems so good. It's exactly what I want. But is it what I need to be doing? He went before the Lord. It feels right. But is it? Second reason here. He's addressing concerns. And there's some real concerns here. First one is grandpa got some bad news a while back. Are you sure this is what you want for our family? You can change your mind, God. I don't want this to be it. What was the bad news back in Genesis 15? Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain, for certain, that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Who wants to be the guy that takes the people into that? Lord, are you sure? I'm open to other options if that's where we're headed. And within that, you told us not to go to Egypt. Dear old dad, you said absolutely not. Genesis 26. Now there was a famine in the land, just like now, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, and the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Lord, you're sending mixed signals. Are you sure this is what we're supposed to be doing? It feels right. I have some concerns. My heart is pulling me, and I want to be in your plan. And I will walk out your 
plan, Lord, but I need to know for sure. There is nothing wrong with double-checking. There's nothing wrong with confirming things with God. It's actually encouraged. We should be doing such things. And thirdly, the reason for doing this is simply to honor the goodness that God has done in their lives. Our relationship with God is about that. It's about relationship. And it's about acknowledgement. It's about understanding that red thread through Scripture that God isn't here just to make people serve Him. God created us to have a relationship with us. The phrasing we see over and over again is, I will be their God and they will be my people. In the beginning and in the end will be God dwelling amongst us, not ruling on high over us where he is unreachable, close, personal, intimate relationship with God is what he so desires. And he wants us to acknowledge who he is. He wants us to acknowledge that he is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the creator of all things. He's the one that holds the universe together by the whim of his will. The deeper you get into the sciences and the understandings of these things, the more and more it points to how on earth could there be earth without God? Everything should be flying apart, and yet we are all held together. God wants us to acknowledge who he is in our lives, and he wants us to have a close and personal relationship with him. Out of Psalm 105, oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all of his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he's done. His miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Abraham, his servant. Children of Jacob, his chosen ones. Deep and abiding relationship with God. Continuing to check back with him. Looking at the bigger picture that he has in our lives. Now, as we continue the passage, we take a bit of a right turn. Who doesn't love a good genealogy? <laughs> Who loves lists of names? <laughs> Some of these lists are really important, actually. Yeah. I'm going to read this whole list, and I'm going to talk about why this one is so particularly significant. It says, now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Kamri, the son of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman, the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the sons of Judah, Er, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah, but Er and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. The sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Yob, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulun, Sered, Elon, and Jahil. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob and Paran Aram, together his daughter Dinah. 
although his son and his daughters numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Zipion, Haggai, Shunai, Ez, Ezbon, Eri, Arodai, and Areli. The sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, and Ishvi, Beriah, with Sarah, their sister. And the sons of Beriah, Heber, and Malachiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph and Benjamin, and to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Vanessa and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Becher, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mufim, Hufim, and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel, who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The son of Dan, Hushim, the sons of Naphtali, Jazril, uh, Jazil, Guni, Jezer, and Shilem. These are the sons of Bila, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, and she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were with his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all, and all the sons of Je Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons in the house of Jacob who came to Egypt were 70. 70 persons. <laughs> Why did we need to know? This all has everything to do with Genesis 10, the complete chapter, 1 through 32. It has to do with the table of nations. So Genesis 10, 1 through 32, outlines after they got off the boat, Noah and his sons, and they multiplied. These are the people groups that spread about over the lands. We had the big map of them for a while here when we were going through this section where the people spread out. It was 70 nations representing all of humanity. These 70 nations represent all of mankind henceforth. Everybody in scripture that we talk about from this point on can be traced back to these 70 nations. They represent all peoples. Now, what's interesting to that, it doesn't mean there were only 70 people born of them. And it means there, were, there was also more descendants after them, but they stopped specifically at 70. When we look at this list right here, and it talks about there were 70 people that came down, except for we didn't count the wives. Or a lot of the daughters. Meaning there wasn't actually 70 exact people that came down. But why do they highlight 70? Because numbers actually matter. So we can't actually get too caught up in that scripture. Some things are put in there simply so we understand the significance of what's trying to be communicated to us. The, the whole idea of seven itself is holy. Seven is a divine number. It represents completion, wholeness. There's a reason God rested on the seventh day and declared it to be holy. So any of these multiples of seven we see, any of these large round numbers with 70 that we see, they have a larger representation of completeness and wholeness. When Peter asked Jesus, how many times am I to forgive my brother? Seven times? He goes, no, 70 times seven, Peter. It didn't mean 77 times. It didn't mean 490 times. It means complete, infinite wholeness, complete forgiveness of your brother. There will never be an end to this. You must completely forgive him of his sin as I have forgiven you completely of yours. Would you like me to only forgive you seven times, Peter? It's a representation of a wholeness, meaning why are we talking about this here? 
in this passage for this moment. It's a bigger picture idea. Israel is a yellow birdhouse. They are going to represent the whole of humanity here, but it's a microcosm. It's a little look at what I can do with an individual people group when I am their God, when I am their king, what is still going to happen? I've given the rest of you choice around the world. I've chosen Israel. I've singled them out. It's almost like a case study. You're going to represent all of humanity in what you do here. And when you have me and when you don't, we have two different things that tend to happen here. For one, the people who don't have humanity, there ends up being sin runs rampant, rule by might, and depravity. It's consistent. Read any sort of history book. This happens again and again and again. And the nations rise and the nations fall because it's just the next strongest person in charge that comes sweeping in. But what happens when you do have God? It's actually an interesting stumbling that happens. You'll have people who follow God, and it goes great, and it's wonderful, and they lead the land, and they are first generation. They've witnessed God. They experience God. They know God, and it's good, and they carry people in, and they raise up their kids who don't have that personal relationship. They didn't necessarily see those miracles firsthand, and they go, but everything's good. Look at all the things we've done. And things go sour, and they stumble, and they fall, and there's issues, and there's challenges, and then the next generation comes along, and they go, God, our fathers were foolish. Please save us. We want you, Lord. And then it's good. You return back to a first generation again, and we have this stumbling pattern over and over and over and over again, and all of it throughout, whether with God or without God, there's a deep need for a Savior for all of humanity. There's a deep need for this idea that's being pointed out to us by God through this representative people. You can't do this on your own. You need to have a deep and abiding personal relationship with me. Everyone in the world needs to be first generation. You all need me. Otherwise, you're going to suffer sin and pain and challenges and struggles that you can't bear and you're going to cry out to me. It's an interesting thing. There was a saying I've heard many times about people that go to war. There are no atheists in a foxhole. When you are at the most trying parts of your life, when death is on the line, the enemy is at the gates, there's not a single person that goes, you know, I don't think I'm going to pray. No, they're crying out for salvation. And that's the reminder here. We need a savior. The representative people that have been given to us proved this to us. God, through the centuries, allowed them to have their choices, to show to us a stiff-necked, stubborn people. That's what he's always calling Israel. They are a stiff-necked people. They are stubborn. They represent humanity. There's a lesson to be learned that will not simply be learned by a quick chastisement. Walked it out. They've seen it. It's our choice whether or not we will learn from the past. So we continue. 
He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him into Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you're still alive. So we have Judah and we have Joseph here. And it's a reminder to us that these two sons should have been inconsequential within their family. You have a fourth son and you have an 11th son. They should have been a wonderful part of their family. They should have been loving husbands, remembered by their children and their wives and celebrated within their family. But their names shouldn't have stood out anywhere, not by humanly standards. It should have been the firstborn that received the inheritance. He would have been the lineage. He would have been the seed that continued on. And he would have been named and then the, his firstborn after him and so on and so on and so on. That's what the expectation would have been. But you have Judah and you have Joseph a fourth son and an 11th son. They should have disappeared into antiquity, but they didn't. And that's part of what God does in our lives. He takes those that we don't expect and he elevates them to places that we would never comprehend. You have Joseph, the 11th son, and he essentially takes the place of the first within his family. He takes preeminence and the authority over the whole family and nobody questions it. He will represent, his two sons within his tribe will represent Israel later on. But then you have Judah. Judah doesn't take preeminence in the family. No, he takes the place of the chosen seed. He's going to be the holy line that God chooses to bring about David and bring about Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, through his lineage. And he will represent Judah not Israel. It's a setting apart. We see this over and over again. You have these huge families, and one is set apart, and one is set apart, and one is set apart. We've seen it happen again and again and again. This nation is going to split. These 12 brothers, these tribes, this whole nation of Israel will split in two. And it'll be a small portion at the bottom, which will be the chosen ones to carry on the righteous remnant, and the ones above that try to go their own way. And then we have this interesting phrasing from Jacob, and he says, I have seen your face, now let me die. And I considered that, the significance in this. And I would ask you a question. Many of you have lost a loved one, whether a parent or a child or a spouse or a dear, close friend. And I would ask you, what would you do if you had one more day? How would your heart sing if you had one more day? Would you continue with a mundane Monday morning? Would you go to work and I'll see you at five? What would you do if you had one more day with them? Out of Ecclesiastes 9, it says, Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. 
because that is your portion in life and your toil at which you toil under the sun. There's a really deep and important lesson here that not to waste the time you have. There is no promise of time. There's no promise of 80 plus years. There's the promise of today. Will you live and cherish the times with the loved ones you have today? Or will you allow busyness, anger, frustration, pride to rob you of those times? Think about it. Any of you that have ever been angry at a friend or a family member, and let's admit it, it was probably over something stupid. Some of you, maybe it was something severe, but even so, if you could resolve it, would you? Or do you want to just hold on to the anger forever? Some of you might be in that right now. What if they die tomorrow? Well, you felt like, yeah, I'm glad I held on to that anger. I'm really glad I didn't talk to them for the last five years. Or if you could resolve it, would you? We can't waste the time we have. Jacob has an, a gift he never thought he would have. He thought his son had been dead for 20 years. What if you'd had someone who'd passed away? It's been 20 years, and they, they show up at your door one day. I got to see them one last time. One last hug, one last goodbye. I can finally be at peace. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds for they have been keepers of livestock and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from your youth, even until now. Both we and our fathers in order that we may dwell in the land of Goshen for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. To the Egyptians. That's the end of our chapter. So the shepherds, why are they abomination to the Egyptians? Uh, we talked about this a little bit a couple weeks ago. Some of it simply has to do with this mentality of we are the civilized people and they are the barbarians. I'm trying to, I tried to put it in a cultural context for us, and I was thinking in this sense, it's the difference between the hillbillies and the city dwellers. Proud hillbilly, grown up in Swansboro. <laughs> Everyone who's ever said this, the phrasing, we got to go into town. <laughs> we just don't quite understand them city folk. It's busy and it's crowded and it's stinky and it's dirty and the lights are always on and you can't see the stars. And worst of all, you got to pay for parking. <laughs> Barbarians. <laughs> and the city folks look at us the same. There's nothing there. <laughs> How do you get anywhere? You can't see your neighbors. It's this idea. There's a, there's a bridge that they cannot bridge. 
But there also could be something else to this. So I looked into the history a little bit of Israel and those that ruled Israel and what could potentially be this such harsh feeling towards any shepherds comes from, I believe it's the 15th dynasty in Israel when the Hikas ruled Israel. The Hikas are shepherd kings. They were foreign powers that came in and dominated Egypt. And it wasn't for quite a while until they threw off their oppressors and drove them out of the land and there remained this prejudice against the shepherds of the land, because these were shepherd kings. So it could very well be one or the other, but I just thought you might enjoy that little piece of history that points to something that's like, oh, I see there. It's a little bit hard to tell because of the way the Egyptians kept some of their records. They didn't keep a lot of the records of their losses. Their history books look really good. We won, we won, and there was this really big gap, and we won again. <laughs> it's hard to distinguish exactly when this dynasty fit in, but we know they were there. So what can we learn? Must keep the big picture in mind as we live day by day. Out of James 4, it says, come now. You who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. But you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Life is short and uncertain. We can make all the plans in the world we want, but we don't really know if we have more than today. Jesus could come back this afternoon. We don't know. Nobody knows the day or the hour of his return, but everyone will when it happens. And so the encouragement is to keep focusing on the bigger picture. You can only live day by day. But we can keep our attention and mind on where we're headed. Out of Matthew 6, it says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Each of us has a different part of the puzzle we're working on. You're working on the whole thing. We're working on the whole kingdom of God together. But each one of us isn't like, nope, I've got it. I'm going to manage the whole thing. I've got a plan. That's not how it works. Each one of us is working on our part of the puzzle. But when we come across a part of the green birdhouse, and we're yellow birdhouse people, we don't go, well, you know, we got them first, so I bet we could draw some yellow on there. And I'm going to grab that red birdhouse too because we need, we need more pieces. We need more to ourselves. We've got we to gotta build our part here. I mean, we're working on God's kingdom. We're going to solve the puzzle. Who cares if it doesn't quite fit? We need to help people fit where they belong. We need to not be greedy after one another. We work together 
We are not Westside Church, the only church of God. We are in a community of believers within our county, within our nation, within our world. We don't just look at what we are working on. We see the whole picture and we encourage and we support and we help and go, you needed this piece. We're going to send them your way. Help you finish what you're working on. We work in this together, piece by piece. And we're going to have to rearrange our time expectations. 2 Peter 3, but do not overlook this one fact. Beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years, one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Know for certain that everyone for the last 2,023 years thought Jesus was imminently coming. And he is. But when a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is a day, imminent is different. You're going to have to expect that our part of the puzzle may not get completed in our lifetime. And to not allow that to be discouraging, but to be encouraged that God has chosen you to help complete the puzzle. We have to change some of our expectations, working one day at a time, piece by piece. Out of Philippians 3, it says, Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal, the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. There are certain things that are going to cause you to be ineffective in doing this, in pressing forward. And one of the major ones is holding on to past hurts. Holding on to regrets, longing for the good old days, and perpetual preparation or delay. Lord, I will do that when. I'll do that when I finish school. I'll do that when I get married. I'll do that when my first child is born. I'll do that when I retire. I'll do that when. I'll do that when. When? We can find us, ourselves a tendency of doing this, of longing for days to come. I'll be able to do it then. When God has a purpose for you now. There should be nothing that holds us back from God's current purpose in our lives. Preparation is good. Preparation is not a bad thing. But we can put ourselves in a spot where we are perpetually preparing and where we never actually have to walk anything out. And it's a dangerous spot to find ourselves, to try to disqualify ourselves because we don't feel we are capable yet. And I encourage you to look through your Bible and look at all of the super capable people that God chose. <laughs> Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything, if any, 
If in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. What is it we've attained? We have attained freedom, eternal life through salvation. You have attained through Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior, if you have called upon his name, freedom to truly live. To live an abundant life, not living a life that is caught up in the rat race of our society. Live a life caught up in busyness and doing and going and being so distracted by this idea of what society tells you you need to have that you've missed what you could have had. You've been given freedom to live, truly live. You've been given freedom to learn. Learn from the mistakes you've made. When you sin, you are not struck down. You are allowed to seek God's grace and go before him and say, Lord, I was wrong. Would you forgive me? And he has given you freedom to do that and loves you so that he does forgive you and leads you through it. Through the difficult, painful decisions we've made, he allows you to learn from them and grow and be better on the other side of it. And he's given you the freedom to love, to look at everyone on this earth and say, they're a child of God. And they have value and they have worth. And I'm going to choose to see them as you see them, Lord. And I'm going to bring goodness into this world and your love and your light. All this because God has set us free. Amen.